Tears were uh, streaming down her face as the words kept rolling off her tongue. Somewhere along the way, she'd lost the wonder, the love, the desire that once marked her entire life. Looking back, life with Jesus used to be absolutely everything. It marked her vocation, her dating decisions. It even allocated the zip code where she bought a home. But now things seemed like foggy memories of a life that wasn't quite her own. Now she just felt stuck. How long had it been since she'd actually heard the voice of God or even felt the faintest whisper of the wind of the Spirit? What was once red-hot missionary zeal to follow Jesus and lead other people to do the same was now barely smoldering embers, longing for a simple breath of the Spirit. She looked at me, just hurting. How many times have we seen this, she asked. A follower of Jesus simply disappears from the community. Their soul withered. I saw it happening to people in big moments. But what I'm realizing is that it's happening to me right now, and I have no idea how to stop it. I'm not quitting, but I can't keep going. His hands couldn't stop ripping up the napkin in front of me. Uh, he already had a pile, but his eyes had dropped in shame. His voice had stopped making noise, and all he had to do was rip up the remnants of this white diner napkin. Uh, the room felt a combination of deep shame, but also relief. The words that he had just spoken hung thicker than the lame music playing in the background. I'm done with it all. The family, the faith, the church. I woke up and realized today was the day. I had to say it. In this day, uh, in his day, no one had pushed harder for the goodness of Jesus, the glory of the gospel, the beauty of the kingdom, and a compelling vision for justice for everyone in the city that he called home. But today, he pushed that half-drank cup of coffee towards me, looked and said, I guess that's it, grabbed his keys, walked out the diner, jumped in his truck, and drove off. Uh, these stories are real stories. They're not made up. They're not fictional. Uh, and they're probably stories similar to ones that you've either had or have heard of. Uh, people who start off in the experience and joy of following Jesus who soon after or over years, maybe even decades later, wither away. And, and we wonder as we look at it, asking uh, whether it's the, man, the woman with just the embers left or the man preaching who found a new calling or maybe sitting at a diner. This is a far cry from that beautiful vision of disciple-making disciples, right? The last three weeks we gathered, we announced good news, Jesus reigns. And he wants to rescue you and be a part of his new family. And as a part of that family, he wants you to co-create with him other little image bearers who together announce and embody his good news wherever you're sent. And that is a compelling vision for life. 
but somewhere along the way of actually being disciples, that can get sucked away. And what we're left with is a withered soul. Uh, Henry Nouwen says, nothing competes with love of Jesus like serving Jesus. Meaning the work that we do for Jesus often gets in the way of us even experiencing his love over time. So we can start off strong and finish terrible. That is one of the possibilities of our faith. And so when we announce this grand good vision over the last three weeks, I want you to know I absolutely believe that. But I also am absolutely aware that we are the most depressed and diagnosed generations ever. It's wild. Uh, we can simultaneously be more aware of the intricacies of God's word. We have more content, more videos, more podcasts, more books, more books to study the books than any other generation. And yet somehow it can still feel like there's this vacuum in our soul that's not quite filled. Somehow we can know all this about Jesus, but still not know Jesus our teenagers are committing suicide at crisis levels. Uh, kids are becoming addicted to pornography years before their birthdays even hit double digits. Uh, we're watching our spiritual parents walk away from the faith. Our sisters and our brothers who we once linked arms with are nowhere to be seen. We're aware that being religious doesn't mean being alive to God, but sometimes we often wonder how do we tell the difference? This isn't just the world out there, but it's the life of the church that we live in. There is an unhealth that can run through the church, even with the best ideals and vision and theology. And so as we go on the journey of loving Jesus and leading other people to do the same, as we come together as a little band of missionaries who want to see Mesa and Gilbert and other cities served with the good news of Jesus and new disciples made and then sent back out in that good news, I want us to be able to do it in such a way and with such an awareness that we last in that journey. Uh, Jesus wasn't, is not surprised. He isn't surprised at how hard it is to be a follower of his in this world. He isn't surprised by the chaos that might exist at the global scale. He's not surprised by who's in government. He's not surprised by the level of anxiety that's caused and maybe in some of our hearts. He's not surprised by any of that, but he does help us prepare for lives that were going to be lived in the world that he created, fractured as it was. And so I want us to lean into just one verse tonight as we ask a question that I think is absolutely crucial for us as apprentices of Jesus in our current cultural moment. You might be familiar with this verse, but I'm going to read it over us because I think it's a discipleship question that changes everything when we delve in a little bit deeper to what Jesus might be asking of us and what he's inviting us into. Uh, the version that's on the screen says simply, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? The NLT, if you have that copy, it says, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus, we uh, come to you tonight uh, knowing that these are words that you spoke to your disciples, but you also speak them to us. Uh, would we hear your voice 
through these red letters in our Bible? Uh, would we hear your tone and your concern and your caution and your invitation to new and fresh life? We ask this in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen. Uh, tonight and for the next two weeks following afterwards, a three-week series, we're going to be looking at the, the concept or the teaching around soul health, what it looks like for us to be men and women and students who have healthy souls. This is not going to be the complete version of it all. This isn't all the extensive teaching you could ever hear on the topic. There are plenty of great resources I would love to walk with you through. Uh, but for tonight, I want us to consider this one question. Uh, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? And as I jump into this, I, I need you to recognize two things. Uh, the first one is, if you grew up in a church, this was often a killer verse used for evangelistic campaigns. Uh, what was familiarly or commonly called evangelism, it would go something like this. Hey, you might chase fame, you might chase a good career, you might chase uh, any of these things. If you chase all those things but still end up in hell, what good is that for you? And if that was what Jesus was saying, that would be very, very convincing, I think, at some point, because it puts you at a place to have to ask that question. But what I, I want you to see, the first thing about this question that he asks in Matthew 16, is that it's addressed to his disciples. These weren't the masses. Uh, these weren't the people that were following after him. These weren't even the crowds that came along to see the miracles. This was his 12 apprentices, those who had left everything in order to follow him. This isn't just a question to consider before you start following Jesus. He was giving them a discipleship question as they followed Jesus, uh, telling them there's a way to live where you pursue your own stuff even alongside of me. It's possible for even those of you who are following me to live in such a way that you lose your soul. Uh, the second thing to see is that word soul is the word suke, which I, it's Greek, and so that's what happens when you translate a Bible out of an archaic language. Uh, but that Greek word soul, if you read up one verse... Uh, again, another verse that is pretty common in uh, 25. It says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good would it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Uh, in those verses, almost all translators translate the one life and the second one soul. They're all the same word. What he wants us to see is that a soul is a living thing. It's the integrated part of you. It's the, the truest thing about you is how the Bible would understand it with suke in the New Testament, and if you really care about it, nefesh in the Old Testament. Those words spoke of an integrated being, not this floaty piece of you that Disney, Pixar decides to make that kind of hovers above the world. But it's the integrated, core, deepest part of who you are. Jesus is telling his followers, there's a way to live where that can flourish and there's a way to live where that is malnourished in struggles. Like all living things, the soul, your soul, can have a quality of life. And what Jesus has always invited his followers into is a life of full, flourishing health. That's the picture of how he wants to restore us as humans. And we can't miss that as we go about the mission 
that we've been sent on. Those aren't separate things. Uh, coming from the garden when God created humans right and together and whole in shalom with him and with creation, with, with themselves and with other people. It was sin that fractured that. And since that time, he's been putting that back together. And we can't miss that as we go about the work that Jesus has given us to do. Because we will falter, we will fade. We will absolutely walk away if our souls are not healthy. Uh, when the soul is saved, but not doing well, other dimensions of our life become symptomatic. Like there's a way to look at a person and see, oh, their soul is doing well. And this is something that you could do even as an internal check. A, a soul that's alive or a person that's integrated and put together in a way that they're alive to God and what he's doing in the world. You will have more compassion. You will have more joy. You will have the fruit of the spirit actually coming out of you. Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control that actually is produced when your heart is healthy, your contentment increases, your confidence is strong, your sexual integrity grows, your boldness, courage, and empathy all grow. When our hearts, when our souls are in a healthy place, our lives demonstrate that. And when they're not, we do things like we get defensive, technical words, we get blamey, we get judgy. We have cloudy thinking. We're apathetic. Our sexual integrity, the choices that we make with our sexuality begin to deteriorate. Uh, whether the things that we're observing and watching or the things that we're participating in physically, they start to slide when our soul is not healthy. Often there's physical symptoms. A disintegrated soul very often results in an inability to sleep. That's all through the Psalms. That doesn't mean if you can't sleep, there's something wrong with you. But very often when there is something divided in your soul, it results in an inability to get rest. The Psalmist talks about that all the time. Friendships become burdensome and not life-giving. Even life with Jesus becomes something you have to tolerate in something, instead of something that is a river of living water. Those two lists might come out in a way that just maybe you feel like something's off, but I'll throw them both up there in comparison. And I, and I wanna give you a second. We're not gonna do this in smaller groups, but looking up at that screen, even as you see the left and the right-hand side, uh, which one marks more of your life right now? I can send you out the slides if you're writing all those words. up to do it right afterwards. But as you think through it, uh, because, this, again, this isn't just an idea that I want to throw out there that maybe we can kick around a little bit and see what you all think about it. But this is something that mattered deeply to Jesus when he says, hey, there's a way to live where your soul can be integrated, your life can be joyful. You can actually be the kind of person full and flourishing that I've created you to be, that even in adverse circumstances and weighty waters of suffering washing up against you, you can still thrive. You can be a resilient disciple in the midst of suffering. But it's going to matter what our condition of our souls in. And so many followers of Jesus ignore our own souls. We see these things popping up in our life and we just assume that's what it is. Everybody's blamey. Everybody's judgy. Everybody can't think sometimes. Have you ever considered that maybe when your creativity tanks, it's because something's off in your soul, not just the fact that you need a new inspiration. 
uh, in the last few uh, years with COVID, something really curious happened. And I don't know if you've looked at it this way, but there was a deep longing inside people from 2000, whatever that was, 20 to 21, 19 to 20, wherever you're at in that. There was a very deep longing, a primal longing in people that was awakened. And it was a desire for things to be made right. Um, people came at this from very different angles, but I think something lodged within the human spirit uh, since the time when Adam and Eve rebelled against God has been a desire for something or someone to finally just make this right. Everything was disrupted. Everybody's confidence, whether it was in their finances or their health or the stability of their government or the way their friend group operated or their church's service that was the anchor to their soul, all of those things in an overnight phenomenon were left a little bit shaky, at least. And you watch, and if you look in the mirror, it happened there. And if you want to look at other people, it happened there too. So you take whichever view you find more comfortable. But you'll recognize that, that people during that season had a longing for things to be made right that was awakened afresh. And so some of us, uh, if you look out, even over the habits you developed during that season, uh, in the first few weeks and months of this season, people turned inward towards things of faith. Uh, if you look at our, it's silly, but if you look at our views on YouTube uh, for during the pandemic, our views on YouTube, when we started doing dumb videos that people watched, uh, people would, they're about Jesus, they weren't dumb, but they were really bad quality. Uh, those are way higher in views uh, than anything we do right now that we finally figured out how to do it in 4K. Doesn't matter, right? Uh, the 720, which if you know is really fuzzy, looks almost like it's a step above the old school Nintendo, what we're putting on the internet. But people were curious, leaning in, asking questions, and desiring, wow, there's things disrupted. Maybe I should turn back to God. Credit card debt went down drastically at the front end of the pandemic. Generosity actually went up for people in the first part of the pandemic. Uh, people had a desire, not just for things to be right, but to be part of that solution for others. And people went about it very different ways, some of them conflicting, and I get that. But it seemed like there was this desire awakening within people. How do we make it right? But then as time went on, we recognized that it wasn't going quickly. And so maybe we needed something different to make us feel better. And Amazon sales skyrocketed. Uh, we looked and said, what would it take to make me feel better? I just want things to be right. Maybe if I buy the right things or I watch the right things and credit card debt that tanked way down spiked back up and we're back, just so you know, good news, we're right back on track with where we were headed pre-pandemic for the American family and credit card debt. People went right back to where they were. A generosity took a nosedive uh, across not just the church, but charitable giving everywhere in the last year. Uh, people who were caged up spent more than their savings on vacations because they just wanted to feel right again. And why do I say all that? Because in a small little window, we're able to see what's always true. When we want things to be made right, we will always turn somewhere or to something. And Jesus knew that. He knows that there's a way of living that you turn to him and you find your soul fulfilled, and there's a way of living where you turn to other things and you will find them increasingly less and less satisfied, even though it takes more and more of you. And so where do we turn when we want things to be made right? Honestly, reflect on this for a second. Is it our phones? I feel off. 
and so I turn to my phone. I feel off, so I turn to Amazon, because if I buy something, it'll make it better. I feel off, and things feel off, so if I turn to Netflix, maybe then I can just numb out. Uh, maybe it's to go to Airbnb and book your next vacation, because that will finally and fully make things right again. Then I'll have what I was looking for. Maybe it's a blunt. Maybe it's a bottle. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's Christian service. The thing that will make me feel good again is to just go serve people, because that's what I ought to do. And if I do that, then I'll have value again. And so uh, in a way of trying to get control, we start doing things uh, maybe for Jesus, but without the power of Jesus guiding us. And it's anxious activity, which again just disappoints us, but then it's attached to Jesus. We all will look to something to make it right. Jesus knows this about his disciples. He knows this about people. And that's why he invites into a more full way of life. See, the, the invitation of Jesus isn't just don't tank your life, so follow me. Which sometimes that's compelling enough. But the reality is that he's saying, no, the invitation is into a full flourishing way of life where your soul's deepest needs are actually met. Where the quality of your life doesn't have to be fear or getting worked up at the latest news report. But there's a quality of your life that you can be at peace. You can enjoy other humans. You can rest. You can celebrate. You can have compassion and come out of it a genuine place. You can look like what it really looks like for people to be human in this world. But we have to, I think, ask the questions for our heart. Imagine if there was a way of life that led to flourishing, shared life with God, like what was always intended. And that vision uh, is startling, uh, even for some followers of Jesus, because they've never considered it that way. They've always just thought, I have my beliefs, and I have my behaviors, and hopefully they match up more than they don't. But Jesus is inviting into a radically different way of life that by being around it, it's good news for your neighbors. Dallas Willard says this. He says, fundamental aspects of life, such as art, sleep, sex, ritual, family, parenting, community, health, and meaningful work are all, in fact, soul functions. And they fail and they fall apart to the degree that the soul diminishes. Have you ever thought, or do you tend to think about, how's my soul doing when your relationships get wonky. So again, another technical term. Or your sleep decreases, or your creativity disappears, or things just don't seem right between you and a friend, or you and your boyfriend, you and your girlfriend, you and your spouse. Have you ever considered, maybe there's something going on in my soul, not just working to take a communication masterclass, but maybe there's something else going on. The question that I want us to ask as we lead into the next few weeks and just to raise is one, uh, the matter of our soul's health is not one of convenience. If what you're thinking of is cool, then I need a spa day for my soul so I can just rest and I can get all the treatments and it'll be quiet, I'll put on the music. That's not the kind of real life discipleship that Jesus has called us into. Uh, this is normal everyday stuff and it can't wait until you have the time for a spa day. Uh, when we ask the question and say our souls are the truest thing about us, that's who we are. There is health and there is unhealth. There is life and there is decay at work here. Like, there's a choice of how we're going to follow. 
then the question that I would love for us to ask, like, is this a priority for us as we follow Jesus? Because sometimes we can get really excited about doing the things of Jesus, like the mission stuff. Uh, sometimes we can get really, really excited about the community stuff because we're lonely, we want friends, like we haven't had a community of peers and sisters and brothers, our family deteriorates, and we really like that community. But those things in the church only work when they're coming out of a healthy heart, when they're coming out of a life truly being formed by God. And I want those other things for us too, but I want them to flow in a healthy way out of healthy hearts and souls. And so the question that we have in front of us tonight, coming from the words of Jesus where he asked this question to his disciples, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world? You get everything and yet forfeit your soul. Or what can anyone exchange for their soul? I would ask this question for us to reflect, how is your soul doing? I had a friend that used to ask this question. It was the most annoying thing ever. You'd sit down for coffee, and this would be his like, intro question. And it was like, bro, haven't had the coffee yet. This is like 7 o'clock in the morning, and I don't know that I want to answer that to you. Um, just real talk, right? But what I also recognize is that's actually a really good question for us to ask ourselves. How healthy is our actual heart? What is actually going on inside of us? Are we more marked by fear than peace? Those are questions only we can answer. And so to give you a few different options, uh, you could be answering like, I'm running on reserves. I feel like I'm out of health, but I'm running on what I know to be true and I'm barely holding on. Or I'm experiencing a season of absolute beautiful connection with God. I see a lot of check engine lights on the dashboard of my soul. You guys ever had this experience where you're driving along and your check engine light pops on? What's the next thing you guys do? The next thing I do is I look at the mileage because I know that those stupid car companies have made that check engine light pop on around 100,000 miles. They pop on around 120, and there's nothing wrong at that point. And so those ones don't always tweak me out when it's actually that engine light that pops on because I know that they program that into the car. However, when there's a light that I don't recognize that comes on, then I pull out the manual or I go on Google, depending on what car I'm driving. One has a manual, the other one doesn't. And so I'll type in, what does exclamation mark with a triangle around it mean? Search, right? Because that's indicating there's something off and I need to pay attention. And what I want us to think of is maybe some of the things that we just consider a little off in our lives might actually be check engine lights for our souls and worth investigating and asking, what does it mean that I am always irritated? That's not just who I am. What does it mean that I can't trust other people? That's not just who I am. What does it mean that I can't answer the question, how are you doing, and I always deflect and ask the other person how they're doing? That's something about me that isn't right that I can have a check engine light on. Or maybe the answer is a combination of those three. We've always got those people, because that's most of us. And then there's the answer, I don't know. I'm really going to have to think more on this, because I wasn't even thinking this way when I walked in this room, and now I've got all sorts of new stuff floating around my head. I'm going to give you a minute just to locate yourself, take a deep breath. That was a lot. And then I'm going to leave us with some good news. I'm not going to leave you just in a mess of check engine lights and smoking engines and uncertain souls. But 
where would you locate yourself? Like I said, I'm not gonna have, uh, you have to turn to your neighbor and tell them, but I would super strongly encourage you to take that answer that you just thought of and tell at least one other person who's journeying with Jesus alongside of you. Uh, there is a healthy practice of us confessing this is where I'm at and what I'm seeing and being able to walk with one another in the real stuff of life uh, that I would just very strongly encourage that conversation because these are the conversations worth having. These are the, the real ones that shape our lives um, in really powerful ways. A few things I'm going to give us, though, walking out, saying, like, all right, I realize there might be some check engine lights. I realize that, hey, I might be a little off. There might be some unhealth. Like, I've looked through that list, and I find myself some on this list, some on that list. I recognize that I could be at threat of my heart not being healthy. My soul, the, the integrated part of me, feels like it might be fracturing along some of those lines. What do I do? Uh, the first thing I, I want us to remember is to remember that the... The story of God is the true story of the world. This is the story that is actually unfolding. And that will anchor you in a very different way than if you hold another story. Uh, stories are how we make sense of details. All of us put the details of life inside some narrative, including tonight. These events that we have tonight go inside some narrative. Jesus gives this. He says the very next line uh, after he says, or what can it gain? What can anyone give in a gain for their soul, yet forfeit their soul? What can you get in exchange for your soul? He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. What he's doing is framing even this healthy soul and the way we live in eternal perspective that says what you're going through right now is not the entirety of human history. It's not all that's to come. There's actually another act in the story where I return and I come back and there's rewards given for what was done and there's a life that's full and lasting that goes on beyond these moments. And so it's worth us considering that this is not the final act of the story. Yet, yes, we endure for a bit. Yes, we have to work through life in this world. Yes, we have disappointments and distractions and suffering and hurts. And yes, there's things that we seem to gravitate towards that we know aren't healthy, that we say no to for a season. But yes, there's a full and flourishing life that goes on into eternity. Ephesians 1 in the message reads this way. It says, God raised Jesus from the dead and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And just for the time being, not just for the time being, but for forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts and by which he fills everything with his presence. Uh, verses like this anchor us in the reality of this is actually what God's doing in this moment. This God who has all power actually wants to see you flourish as a human and as a family and as a community. Like that's what's taking place right now. This is worth us considering because we live in a, a culture that wants to trivialize our experiences and our faith and increasingly push it to the margins. But what God says is, no, that is what you need the most. Fill in the pieces around that, but have me at the center. A second thing I would invite us to is if you see your heart's not healthy and your soul health is coming out and you're like, man, that does not look good, 
I would encourage you strongly, repent where needed. Like if you already know that there's things that you're doing that are against God, that detract from your joy, that detract from life, then repent from that first and then start working through the other stuff. Uh, there is a farmer that went out and he had a stream in his backyard and the stream uh, is what gave water to all his crops, all of his cattle, all that good stuff. And the water had just stopped and it had gone down from a trickle to absolutely nothing. And so him and his son go out on their horses. They go out to ride out and see, like, what in the world's going on? Because we know the problem. It's almost always the same thing. Upstream, a beaver has decided they would build a dam and stop the water, and then it trickles down. And the effects are that everything else dies in this farm because the water's blocked up. Now, it would be absolutely ridiculous to consider this farmer and his son ride their little horses all the way out because they're little horses. They drive their little horses all the way out, uh, park on the side bank, and they're looking at the river, and they see this beaver dam going across it, and they're like, oh, that's what's blocking the flowing of life. Uh, that's what's going to destroy everything else that's left in our farm uh, is this blockage. But man, look at those beavers work. They're doing such a cool job, aren't they? Like, I kind of like watching nature. And I kind of like watching the beavers chew down the trees, make them fall, build that cool thing. You'd be looking at it and be like, hey, if you don't move that, everything else dies. Move the branches so that the water can flow again. So that the source of life is connected again to your everyday stuff of life. You need that. Don't just observe in this one little thing that you might like for right now. It's going to lead to death everywhere else. In a similar way, when we look at sin in our life, when we know what's blocking us from experiencing life, to leave it there because we like the way it looks right now, it will lead to devastation to everything else. So let's remove that stuff when we already know what it is. Don't tolerate it because you don't know how quickly or how long everything else in your life has on life support when you've blocked off the source of it all. And then the last thing for us is to receive again the full life of Jesus right in this moment. Uh, the beauty is not that, like, how do we become resilient disciples? We have to have heart health. Cool, how do we do that? Do we build up and muster up our own strength and white knuckle it and try figuring out how do we make this happen on our own? Uh, the Bible says that's actually the wrong answer. The right answer is that we receive the life that Christ wants to give us, that Jesus wants to give us. He said, I came to give you life and to give it abundantly. What we do when someone gives you something is what? Receive it. Uh, receive it. So even on tonight, any given Sunday, the night that we're here tonight gathering to worship, to pray, to receive the table, to listen to the word, Jesus stands ready to give you his life. And what we do is we receive it. Uh, one pastor in New York City right now, he's preaching through a series. I haven't heard the series, but I love the title. It's called God Comes Where He's Wanted. And the imagery that he's leading with in this series is to say uh, that when we curate and cultivate space of receptivity, God tends to come in more powerful ways than when we're rebellious and with our hands up against him. And so what does it look like for us to cultivate spaces and places where our hands are open to receive the life that Christ has for us so that that fruit can be produced for us? And so the invitation tonight is even as we pray and as we come to the table, to remember again the great love that Jesus has for us that doesn't stand at a distance until we get it right. Uh, that Jesus sees us in our wounded, sick, and hurting souls and doesn't stand far away, but it says that he comes near. 
And we see that most explicitly at the cross and in the resurrection when the wounds of the world desperately needed healing. And God sends his son Jesus, right, to bring freedom and forgiveness and healing and hope and offer up his perfect life in place of our imperfect lives to bring hope and healing and restoration and the ability not just for the world to be made right one day, but for our own hearts and souls to be made right with him again. 